I'm Diana Penuntial, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is Conover with American Libraries. This episode, we're celebrating Mental Health Awareness Month, which is observed each May. In recent years, and especially in the age of the pandemic, self-care has been paramount. Our podcast team explores how some library workers have taken care of themselves and others during these stressful times. First, I speak with Randa Lopez Morgan, programming and events librarian at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. We talk about LSU Library's relaxation room and how it has helped students decompress during finals week. Next, American Library's managing editor Tara Dankowski interviews Rebecca Tolley, author of A Trauma-Informed Approach to Library Services. Tolly is also a professor and librarian at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City. They discuss what it takes to be a trauma-informed library and how to keep library workers from getting burnt out. Finally, Phil Morehart, communications manager at the American Library Association, chats with Michelle Schaub, library media specialist at Monona Grove High School in Wisconsin. Schaub is a certified yoga teacher and was featured in the March-April issue of American Libraries for implementing yoga classes and promoting mental wellness at her school. We hope this episode provides you with a mental break and helps you recenter in your daily life. Enjoy! But first, a word from our sponsor. The ALA-accredited Master of Library Science program from the School of Library and Information Management at Emporia State University is now fully online and asynchronous. Our affordable out-of-state tuition rate ensures students access to this program from anywhere at any time. In two years or less, you can earn your MLS. Request further information at emporia.edu forward slash slim. That's E-M-P-O-R-I-A dot E-D-U forward slash S-L-I-M. So uh, the first question is, you know, tell me about the relaxation room at LSU. What's in it and how often is it available to students? Yeah, so our uh, relaxation room uh, was created in 2016 and we use it for mostly like exam week time. So uh, at the time we were, we tested it for midterms and then we uh, had our like big opening, I guess, uh, you could say uh, fall, I mean, not fall, uh, finals week 2016. Uh, and it, this was a, we got a programming committee together. My, we had a new dean at the time and he wanted to engage our students in like a fun kind of, you know, way that's de-stressing. And like they were already in the building anyway, doing these types of things. So why not provide a space for them? Also, uh, we had such a good, feedback from students that it's now become an annual or an annual, a, a twice a semester uh, event that we host. And so the relaxation room itself is a room that is within the libraries. It's a staff only room that we normally have. And it's, it's actually one of the uh, more beautiful rooms that we have the library. It overlooks, you know, the back of the quad mm-hmm. and uh, it has all these trees. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very inviting space to begin with. Uh, and so it was a staff only room. And we book it and we set it up. Uh, we have all kinds of things in there. Uh, we have uh, the door outside is decorated to like 
really draws students' attention and to like make them feel like they are allowed into the space. Uh, and then once you're in, we have fun different types of furniture, like beanbag chairs. Uh, right now we have this really cool, uh, it's like this uh, camp chair, but it's like a fur chair uh, that students really, really like. We want to make sure that the furniture is weighted to uh, be able to hold people of all different sizes. Uh, so, like, we're not just going to find a chair that only fits a, a someone of 200 pounds, but, like, we tried to find chairs that are, like, you know, so that people can really get comfortable. Um, we also try to have all different types of items in there that really engage all of the senses. Uh, so things that are good for touching, so the kinetic sand. Uh, we have like this box of rice that we've scented with essential oils, and we uh, put these like little like dog little figurines in there, and so students can like hunt them out. We also have uh, aromatherapy. We do coloring, origami, uh, bubble wrap. We had stress balls that are like LSU Libraries branded stress balls. Uh, we make these uh, really pretty, um, I call them sensory bottles, but there's just like glitter and baby oil essentially. Uh, and we set them out and students like to shake those. Uh, you know, and as the years have progressed, the things that we've put in there or taken out have changed. And so every year things may be different. Uh, we eventually were able to purchase like a Keurig and now we, we try to provide uh, some coffee pods uh, so students can have cups of coffee. Uh, so it's just really a space that traditionally they don't have access to that they now have during peak times of stress for them. Uh, and the feedback has been uh, phenomenal. Uh, students genuinely love it. Uh, we invested in a door counter that we can put, and it's a, just a cheap little door counter. Um, but we get anywhere from like, you know, a thousand entrances and exits a semester. Uh, so lots of students coming back and forth into the room. Um, so that's pretty cool. And even if they don't hang out the entire time, they still are checking it out and then telling their friends about it. Students are very respectful of the space itself. Um, and are, you know, very excited about the room. And we get comments all the time like, oh, you know, when are you, can this be all year? Can this be semester round? And I would love to do that, but we just don't have the space at the moment to facilitate something like that continuously. Right. Well, um, I'm wondering how did the idea to have the relaxation room come about in the first place back in 2016? You know, did you, did the librarians kind of think that there was a, a need for this or? When we got our new dean, uh, that he was really instrumental in just being like, hey, why don't we create some events for students to engage them while they're already in the building? We did want a space that students could use that was welcoming. And the initial idea was for them to maybe have like some coloring uh, and then a place to play some games. Uh, and then the programming committee really took that and just kind of ran with it as far as like what we found relaxing and I think 2016 was also kind of the peak of like that coloring phase like you know all the adult coloring uh, was right. kind of a big deal back then uh, and so that was kind of how it started I believe. In your article you mentioned how eight, 75 to 85 percent of students have library anxiety meaning that they're often scared of the library or thinking about going to the library brings them anxiety. How do you hope that the relaxation room alleviates that? And how can libraries or library workers work to alleviate that in students overall? 
I think sometimes we forget as librarians that like going up to somebody and asking for help is scary. Like it's very scary. Uh, we had this great assignment when I was in library school where you had to go to a research desk and ask a reference question, uh, which is such a like, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but I remember being kind of like myself a little nervous to just go and do that. And I was in library school. So you have students that are in the building, but maybe are nervous to ask for help there, or they're not aware that librarians exist to, to help them you know, navigate this research mm -hmm. process, or maybe, you know, this is the first time that they're ever in the building, it's because it's exam week, and they're already stressed out. And librarians are in a prime position to make connections on campus. Like, we are in this wonderful, where we see our students, but we also exist in like the support service area. And so sometimes students just don't even realize that there's specific things for them. And it takes talking to somebody to like, oh, I didn't know that service existed. And we are in that great way of like being able to do that because we do know that these things exist. Uh, so this room is really a way for one, we do have people go in and check on it throughout the day. Uh, so if we see like a student in crisis, we can kind of you know, facilitate and help get them to the right people. Uh, and I have had a couple students, you know, in there that are experiencing some emotions. And so, you know, you just help as best you can. Uh, and this room, though, it just, it, it gives the students the place that the library, or gives the students the idea that the library is a place for them and that they belong here. And it's, you know, one of the truly only places that students can exist without having to pay for something. And so, you know, we want nothing from them. We just want them to have this nice thing. And there's so much research that goes into, like, student loneliness and the mental health of students and how something like this, you know, it's kind of just that little light in the dark place, right, is you just show that, like, hey, I care about what you're going through and I know that this is stressful, but here's something kind of nice to help you. Um, can make all the difference for a student. I've had students, you know, tell me that they teared up when they walked into it because it just was so relaxing and comforting. They're already going to be in the building, so why not provide this space that can help bridge students to each other and to the to the librarians as well? Um, you know, and if it helps, then why not, right? How do librarians at LSU respond when they see a student needing not just academic help, but help going through stressful times like finals or completing a project? Do the librarians help direct students to resources at school where they can get like mental health support or? Have things like LSU Cares where if we notice that a student is going through some sort of serious crisis that we can put in on a report and somebody from the university, uh, and depending on which area that they might need help, uh, we'll contact them and see, you know, what can we do to, to help facilitate, you know, whatever crisis they're going through. You know, in the library, I can't control the things that are outside of my control, but within the library, you know, those are some things that I can control and can help. So many times students just want to talk about their problems or just, you know, have somebody that can listen to them vent about whatever they're going through or, you know, when it, especially when it comes to like their research aspects, you know, that process is so emotional and it's emotional in ways you don't really truly understand until you're in that situation. And so, you know, whenever a student comes up to me or if I notice that the student's having an issue, you know, just talking to them and showing them that there is like an adult on campus 
that cares about what they're going through or, you know, wants to help connect them to other people. I find that so many times the number one issue that they're having is just that they're lonely. You know, being on such a large university is such an isolating experience, and, and especially with these, like, you know, brand-new freshmen that are away from home for the first time uh, or, you know, even non-traditional students that maybe they don't necessarily fit in with their classmates and they just want somebody to talk to. Um, and so it's taking five seconds and just checking in on our students and making sure that they're doing okay in those other areas is really just, I mean, it, it can do a lot for a student. It takes nothing. It, it costs nothing to show that you care about somebody. Uh, and in college, we are so focused on like, oh, we need to build these adults that can function in, you know, their jobs. But honestly, we're, college is about creating adults that are functioning, period. And you want to create an adult that is healthy mentally, that knows where their boundaries are, that knows how to handle anxiety, that knows, you know, where maybe they don't know how to handle it, but maybe just asking for help. Um, so that's one of the things that we can do with the library is, is, you know, teaching them that maybe we are not the support or the help that they need, but we maybe know how to go about getting or asking the right questions or, again, making those connections across campus with people that can help them. Uh, you know, that, that is such an important part of what we do. And I think that sometimes we forget that, especially in academic, that it's not just about the research, that it's about creating these functioning, wonderful humans that, you know, care about each other and, you know, want to succeed in life in whatever ways that means for them. <laughs> Here's another quick word from today's sponsor. The ALA accredited Master of Library Science program from the School of Library and Information Management at Emporia State University is now fully online and asynchronous. Our affordable out-of-state tuition rate ensures students access to this program from anywhere at any time. Our PhD program is also now fully available online. Request further information at emporia.edu forward slash slim. That's E-M-P-O-R- ia.edu forward slash slim. I'm here with Rebecca Tolley, author of A Trauma-Informed Approach to Library Services and professor and librarian at East Tennessee State University. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, could you start by describing what trauma-informed care is? Trauma-informed care um, is a framework that encompasses um, practices promoting a culture of safety, empowerment, and healing. Um, it assumes that, um, that most people have a history of trauma and that experience of trauma has rewired their bodies and brains so that they could exhibit a range of behaviors as they cope or try to self-regulate. Um, it it started mostly in human services and health services to meet their clients. And um, the more I learned about trauma-informed care, the more I felt like it offered a solution to some um, organizational culture issues and behaviors in libraries, but also because we do um, – we do help the public, and so um, in helping the public, oftentimes we 
we see a range of behavior, you know, as people are, are using the library. And, and what might this trauma-informed care uh, look like in libraries? Could you give some examples of practices that a library might put in place or interactions a library might strive to have with a patron um, in order to create a trauma-informed environment? Um, I think that the first um, the first practice that that libraries could or should put in place is to educate uh, their front lines and their behind the scenes person people educate everyone about um, here's here's how common trauma is and um, this is what it may look like and here are some ways for you to to um, handle it, and I think that a lot of our public-facing people, front lines people, are already really, really great at, um, you know, diffusing situations if people are getting upset or um, don't understand the reason why we have certain rules. So, um, so one of the things that we we could do is. Um, is to look at these rules. And so some of the practices that libraries have may be a little too rule-bound, I guess, um, for for lots of people to understand, well, why do I have to have my library card with me to check out a library book? Um, at, at my university, we, every like everyone is supposed to have their ID card, and um, and they don't, get service if they don't have an ID card and I don't necessarily agree with that but that's the policy we have and so I would like to look at that policy and see um, how to dismantle it. My perception of that policy is that it was created as a time saver at our, our circulation desk or front desk because they help a lot of people and they don't necessarily have however long it takes to go into the system and look you up and see if you're an active student who has, um, I don't know, I think it's a time-saving device, basically, and um, our our traffic has slowed down tremendously, you know, since COVID, and it hasn't really picked up, so I feel like this would be a time when we could look at that policy and change it. Um, so you mentioned um, some policy changes and also kind of informing, you know, your frontline and, and um, I guess, backline staff about, um, you know, what, what trauma-informed care might look like. Um, say, say that a library wants to, like, formally commit to providing trauma-informed care. Um, how would you recommend that they get started? And what resources should they consult or what conditions should be in place um, to do this work successfully? Oh, well, that, that's an excellent Excellent question. Um, I think that, well, the first way to get started is to do a little bit of education. And then um, you really need to um, get a sense for everyone's commitment to, um, you know, becoming a trauma-informed organization or trauma-informed library. And you can do that with, um, like, a climate survey um, one of the one of the things about this kind of of change is that you can you can change yourself you can make that kind of change in you know your level of empathy and how you conduct yourself 
and you know if you're a middle manager um you can spread the trauma informed framework and those principles to your immediate team but if you don't have um i guess buy in or commitment from your director or your dean then um you know you are not it has to come from the top unfortunately i think people can work at the bottom and work at the middle but if there isn't um that kind of commitment from from above because it it does take time um and it may take some money and so um you know a climate survey uh, assessment like a readiness assessment um, I, I think that I have an example of one in my book, um, but you could Google um, readiness assessment or um, workplace climate assessment, and a lot of these things you could kind of bootstrap yourself. Um, so you really have to have, um, I think I would say like you know, 70, 80 percent of people on board to um, to commit to providing uh, trauma-informed care or being trauma-responsive. Yeah. Um, So interestingly, in your book, uh, you note that library workers are helpers, but they're not in what is seen as traditional helping positions. Um, And similarly, I've heard the term secondary responders used to describe um, some library roles. And you write about how, as a result of this, library workers may experience um, Secondhand trauma and compassion fatigue. Um, do you? Have, I mean, I'm just wondering. Do you have any tips for how a workplace um, might balance the employee experience with the customer experience, so that employees aren't taking on too much emotional labor to do this trauma-informed care work? Well, I think that having a um, a safe and supportive work environment really helps with the employee experience. Um, if employees feel like they have the autonomy to um, to pass um, a customer to another person, um, you know, if um, if the employee's having a bad day or they just feel kind of tapped out, or if there's something that the customer has done to, you know, um, like you know, trigger someone's um, secondhand trauma or compassion fatigue then having backups um so your manager or a colleague or coworker who can come and um take over so that you can you know um remove yourself from the situation and go take a walk or um you know breathe deeply um some sort of way to self regulate yourself um and and calm down um there are a couple a couple ways that you could um you could um do this you know as far as um deep breathing there's a um a strategy that my therapist um mentioned to me to um a lot of times when we get when we get flustered or we uh, get triggered i guess um sometimes we can disassociate and um there is uh, something called the 54321 grounding method. Um, basically, what this is is um, so you start with five and then you acknowledge five things that you see around you. So, you know, in your office or outside if you've taken a break. 
And then um, you move down to four. What are four things you could touch? So if you're outside, you could touch the buildings, bricks. You could touch a leaf on a tree, et cetera. Th um, not the third, the three things you want to acknowledge are things that you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing that you can taste. And actually, I'm reading a, an excellent book right now um, about trauma, and it's by Stephanie Fu. Um, get the title of it for you. It's called um, What My Bones Know. And in that book, she describes a technique that she uses that I had not ever heard before. But she says it's basically like this 54321 um, technique, but you do it with colors. So to ground yourself, you may just, okay, what do I see around me that's orange? And then you 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 could be like, oh, the washi tape is orange. Oh, the ruler is orange. Oh, my water bottle is orange. So that sort of grounds you as well. And I wanted to end on a note of self-care, um, which you write about also in your book pretty extensively. Um, first, why is self-care so essential to the profession? And what can individuals do to practice um, self-care effectively? Um, and secondly, what can be done at the institutional level so that self-care and setting boundaries aren't just the responsibility of the individual? That's a great question. Um, self-care is essential to the profession uh, for a couple of reasons, but I would say the biggest reason is that um, we're a feminized profession. And... Um, um, most of us who are, are women or identify as women have absorbed a lot of cultural conditioning about how we should be and how we should act. And a lot of that, what is associated with being feminine and female is caretaking. And so um, those cultural expectations are that we take care of others and um, sacrifice ourselves and martyr ourselves and then don't take enough care of ourselves. Um, so I think once you kind of understand that, that you perhaps neglected yourself um, because you've been taught to do so culturally, and then you realize how important self-care is for, you know, restoring your calm at the end of the day or um, letting you, um, you know, calm down or you know, have like that work-life balance where you're not ruminating over what happened at work and, and you know, your customers, um, you know, problems, um, you know, someone who might not have a home and you're really thinking about them and and wishing that you could do more to help them, but, you know, you kind of can't. So that's why you need to practice the self-care um, just for yourself. Uh, because I think too many of us, um, you know, sacrifice ourselves and ignore ourselves. Um, at the institutional level, um, as far as encouraging self-care and setting boundaries, um, that goes back to um, administration and management. People can do these things individually, but without a, um, like, a culture within the library, um that is intentional. Um, I mean, so if you did decide to make your library or organization a trauma-informed, trauma-responsive library, 
then part of what you would do during that, um, you know, looking at policies, looking at practices, um, changing those things, um, processes, is to bake in this element of self-care and boundaries. Because I know that um, a lot of times uh, many of us are expected to to not have boundaries, to have porous boundaries, which means, you know, um, that we will respond to an email after 5 p.m. or, you know, we'll come in on the weekend to, to put out a fire. And so um, that commitment from administrative um, director dean level has to, I mean, they have to, um, they have to be the ones to communicate that, that this is important and that they believe that everyone will benefit from it. Um, otherwise, you know, it's just, you know, one or two, three or p- three people in different areas kind of taking um, taking care of themselves, but it doesn't necessarily benefit the whole library. And we want to give a quick thanks to our sponsor of today's episode, Emporia State University. The ALA-accredited Master of Library Science program from the School of Library and Information Management at Emporia State University is now fully online and asynchronous. Our affordable out-of-state tuition rate ensures students access to this program from anywhere at any time. You can get an MLS degree in two years or less and even take courses in our fully online PhD program. Request further information at emporia.edu forward slash slim. That's E-M-P-O-R-I-A dot E-D-U forward slash S-L-I-M. And for our final segment, Phil Morehart, Communications Manager at ALA, chats with Michelle Schaub, Library Media Specialist at Monona Grove High School in Wisconsin, about the yoga classes she has implemented at her school. When did the, the, the program start? The idea for it started last year. Um, the actual program started in October. Okay, October. That was that and, was our first. Yeah, our first gathering was in October. Okay, and where did that take place? Um, we started in the choir room and our auditorium on the stage um, because of just some space issues. Um, and I should say, I, I actually did yoga with the staff once prior to that. Um, in the library, which is kind of my vision for it, um, remaining in the library um, in August for some staff development. Um, we've since moved. We are still after uh, in our after-school element. We are still needing to be in the choir room because of some schedule conflicts, but we have officially moved um, into the library space for all of our mornings. Okay, so and in, in, um, this takes place, you said there's it's, there's morning sessions and afternoon sessions, or when, when exactly during the day, and how many times a week are there, are these, is this happening? Um, as of right now, we're doing uh, one afternoon a week. It's typically Wednesdays, um, okay. and then uh, two mornings a week. Uh, it's been Thursday and Friday mornings, um, but as the year progresses with um, different like athlete schedules and things like that. I'm I'm constantly kind of checking in with the regular attendees and the the newbies um to kind of see uh what works best. So it's it's going to remain a bit fluid based on our um our interest, but uh typically one afternoon and for sure one morning too if if we have interest. Extending it long range, I am looking to um build some of these activities the the mindful 
pieces and um, some of the more elemental yoga moves into our blocks. Um, we have a 90-minute block schedule, um, and mm-hmm. I'd love to start doing some opportunities either at our lunches or kind of as a, a brain break or a mindful break during our um, block schedule during the daily um, library time. Okay. And um, what I guess going back back to like the beginning, um, uh, why did you did you initially start this program? And I guess I guess to kind of to that question, why why is it important for uh, libraries in particular to promote and teach mindfulness and yoga? So at, I can speak at the high school level, um, but I th- I think this is true of of all kiddos. Um, mm-hmm. We have a very rigorous and somewhat intense um, school day based on students' um, perceptions of what they should be doing, based on, you know, expectations of teachers, um, expectations of parents. There are so many um, places that I think adults recognize more readily that we're pulled and stretched in many different ways um, with our time and our expectations. But students, um, I don't think, uh, always see that um, and Mm -hmm. and recognize it in themselves. And so I started with the pandemic. um, I started practicing yoga again. I had been away from it for a while. And I I realized how much um, internal work I was doing um, on the mat and how much of that lesson I was being able to take off the mat um, and apply to those spaces where um, my expectations didn't meet what was happening or I was feeling really overstretched or overwhelmed. And um, I said, well, why can't I take what I've been learning and applying in my own personal life and bring it to our students in a space where um, we have the, um, excuse the pun, flexibility to be able to um, manage the time a little bit differently. Um, so I, I've always, you know, seen the library as a place for um, calm, for sanctuary, for thinking outside the box, for solving problems. Um, and, Really looking at mindfulness and practicing mindfulness um, is a piece of all of those elements. Uh, And so as I was getting um, further in my own yoga practice, I looked into getting trained to be able to share that with others. And um, the the program I ended up doing, um, Breathe for Change, is very school-focused. Um, and so I thought, you know, why this this is centered for largely classrooms, but the the library has even more flexibility and potentially more impact because students um, are choosing to be there and cho- choosing already a space where they feel comfortable, unlike a classroom where they're assigned to. You mentioned the um, the classes you take. Do you have a teacher training? I'm I'm 200 hour um, is is what they call it 200 hour teacher certified for yoga and social emotional learning facilitation for students and and for staff. That's the groundwork of of where you at least need to be um, to have you know the the knowledge to be able to share with others. Um, I think the social emotional facilitation is a really important aspect that I didn't. Um, this is so much further than just doing some yoga. Mm-hmm. It really looks at, um, like like I mentioned earlier, the, the internal um, and really like kind of rooting into, you know, what what am I feeling? How am I responding to the world around me? Um, when I take some time to reflect on these things, then what's the next step? How can I take that with me? And yoga is kind of the embodiment, like the physical embodiment of it. But the social emotional piece is really that elemental, like how do I 
look at all of this from a larger lens and um, apply it to like the internal, the mental and emotional. Um, and that has really been more rewarding than I could have um, foreseen when I, when I set out on this. And um, yeah, I'd like to learn a bit more about the, uh, the other, the other side, the, the, the non-yogic elements um, of the program and like what other, what other type of programs and, and activities do you have um, for the students uh, in that regard? So, um, yeah, we've, uh, when I say we, I have a, an amazing um, education assistant who helps me out, and she, um, she's she been helping me to create displays. Um, we have done some um, brain break activities, so bringing back, even in a high school library, bringing back things like Legos, um, puzzles, uh, crafts, uh, you know, th things that allow students to find space to play, to step back from the seriousness of work, from um, the obligations that are, you know, hitting them kind of rapid fire in some some cases, and allowing students to feel okay, um, recognizing that they have needs that are sometimes not met in the traditional spaces of school or of life, and so. Um, yeah, simple, like picture books, um, creating comfortable spaces. So I reorganized the, rearranged the entire library, um, literally moving almost every bookshelf that we could um, to carve out, one, a, a several different types of spaces of, um, like I said, sanctuary, some individual spaces um, coming off of the pandemic, some uh, participatory and co collaborative community spaces, um, and, and really a variety within our one location so that students can suit their needs, um, which is, again, very different from a high school classroom that's overcrowded and, um, you know, stacked with chairs. And, um, and so even things like the um, yoga bolsters and the yoga blocks, um, I'm teaching students how they can use those in our space to just make themselves more comfortable and read mm -hmm. um, or do some schoolwork uh, with their legs up the wall in a traditional yoga pose that they may not even, you know, know exists, but um, mm -hmm. can now be um, physically more comfortable um, throughout the day to be able to also make themselves emotionally more comfortable or mentally more comfortable and find those moments of relaxation or recharge um, by doing a, a different type of activity or a different physical embodiment. Okay, so it's so it's not just necessarily confined to morning and afternoon blocks. It's just it, this is um, a program that really exists all day, right? Like when when yeah. students are in the library, they can take advantage of these of these programs as well. But the yogas are <clears throat> the yoga itself is in the in the two blocks, morning and afternoon blocks. Correct. Okay, cool. And then cool. Um, the uh, the other um, component that I haven't worked in yet, but that's kind of my next. My next step as all of these things start to fall into place is um, to also teach some breath work mm. um, and just, um, you know, sitting and, and creating that that moment of being able to um, find that whatever it is that they're missing in their day um, that we all sometimes find we're missing in the day by not breathing into our own body, um, if that makes any sense. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, holding holding our breath, taking shallow breaths, um, you know, being kind of rushed, um, taking that moment to recognize um, the physical and how that connects with the emotional and mental um, 
calmness that we, we sometimes need to recenter or recharge. Um, and so not everybody's comfortable doing yoga poses, but everyone breathes. Um, so <laughs> just, just reteaching students um, how to take a breath in, a, in an intentional way um, is a great way to, to kind of reset or reconnect or shift focus. Awesome, awesome. And um, you, you mentioned your assistant, but um, how many um, other teachers, I guess, I guess the facilitation of this I've, I, I'd like to learn a bit more about. Um, are there other teachers involved who are helping to lead some of these class, um, like yoga classes or some of the other programs? Um, so two other people in our building were, um, were trained but have not been um, collaborating with my approach. One of them is a health teacher, and he has been incorporating some of this work in his health class. Um, okay. And the other is a, is in our student services, and she um, hasn't done too much um, outreach so far. Um, I, I would say this particular work in, in my library with the um, afternoon and morning classes and then the work within our space has been just my my piece um, individually. My my goal personally is um, I do have teachers who are very supportive and participate by coming to our yoga sessions and um, a few of the mindfulness sessions that I've done before and after school. But by and large, um, my goal is to build community in within our building, and um, that has started by um, both teachers and students showing up to um, practice yoga together in the same space at the same time where typically it's either a student club or a teacher club. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where teachers have been helpful in bringing students on board and vice versa. Is there a story or topic you'd love to hear us cover? Email us at dpenential at ala.org and let us know. We welcome feedback and hope to hear from you soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.